Why, hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan, pureandsimplebible.com. Very thankful to have you with me and participating in a conversation. It's part four of a really, really fun mini-series called What is My Role in the Church? I hope that you have been inspired by David's study. I really enjoyed the recording of it. Um, David and I recorded across three different times, and it was almost three hours long of recording. So this episode is a little bit longer, and probably something you will notice is that our voices are going to sound different somewhere in it. So for those of you who are um, audio files or audio snobs, I don't know what the right word is, uh, consider how it could be in some of our recordings, one of us had a cold and the other one didn't, or vice versa. At the moment, I'm getting over a cold. And so uh, anyway, you might see a bit of an, or rather, you might hear a bit of a difference in um, the tone, but hopefully the message and content will still be there. We go down a rabbit hole in this final uh, section where we talk about um, elders, specifically what the elders in the book of Acts are doing and why they get on this list. And I just want to say I really appreciated that part of the study, and I hope you do too. So uh, we left it on a cliffhanger last time about talking about righteous community leaders. So I'm going to go ahead and play just a clip uh, from the last recording, and then Dave will get started answering it. If you haven't listened to any other recordings in this miniseries, you need to pause this track right now and go back to listen to part one, two, and three before you listen to this final part of the series. And without anything else, let's jump back into it, shall we? Tell me about, uh, if we're moving into chapter 17, um, let me go ahead and, you know, for our listeners, review. There's a lot. There's too many probably for me to review all of them, but let me review the ones that we've been talking about in this recording. So in chapter 12, you've talked about hospitable servant. Chapter 13 is a truth seeker. Chapter 15 is a truth validator. Chapter 16 had a charismatic influencer and a spreader of joy. And now here we are in chapter 17. You've got something written down called righteous community leader. Um, what's that about? Well, we have the man Jason that is mentioned here in Acts 17. And, uh, you know, it talks about them dragging Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. And as this dialogue is happening, everyone knows who Jason is. I mean, even the people that are, that are, are trying to, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to have Jason arrested are talking about him on hearing on verse eight, on hearing this, the crowd, and the city officials were greatly, um, disturbed and they collected bond from Jason and the others and they released them. Here's a man who lives in the community and it doesn't mention the other men. Why does it mention him? Well, I think it's because he's the prominent guy within this community. And when something like this happens, they all knew who to turn to and hold accountable. And the reason that I called it the uh, righteous community leader is this is somebody that within the community not just the church, but within the actual community that people live in, they've either that they've taken a position because of their their job, or maybe just the, the clout from the, the knowledge that they have to provide. Maybe they're a school board member or they have run for an office, but they've used their integrity to establish themselves within their community as a good, trustworthy, righteous person. And what the church needs is people to do that. If you have the skill to do that, the what a what a, a beautiful way to represent Christ in your community uh, to serve more than just the church, but to spread it out to so many other people, to be kind of a beacon for um, any kind of inquiry that that people may have about the church. But then to be able to put two and two together and go, okay, this guy has done so much for our community. He's done so much for this and this and this. Where does this guy go to church? I wonder what he, what, what is it about him or yeah. her, you know, that they've been able to uh, do so much. I'd like to, I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, not everybody can be this role. Um, I'm I'm thinking about Jason in Acts 17, and he was able to uh, deliver them a bond, right? He had to, to give payment to the city officials, right? and they released him. Yeah. And that's probably something that a lot of people couldn't do, but because of his position, he's able to keep the peace. Sure. So we may not we may not be paying off bonds, but yeah, like you're saying, this one's probably going to take a lot of time to develop. But this is not a start tomorrow type of a thing, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to process it a little bit. Um, I think a young person obviously could be a righteous community leader. How do you get started other than when just by being present? But it's maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna have a. a healthy mindset about that this this one's going to take my life to develop as far as your integrity right okay um in addition to being a righteous community leader you also talk about being a righteous couple and this one comes from x18 and i'm curious how being a righteous couple is being uh helpful to the church well this is one of the few, maybe the only one, that talks about a role outside of just yourself. And, you know, when we say when, when two people are married, they become one flesh. Right. I think that this is a, a wonderful example of this couple being an identity. And they're an identity having an impact on their community. They have obviously an impact over Paul who stays and works with them for a while. They have a huge impact on Apollos and both of them are mentioned, not just, uh, you know, not just the husband here, but like we said earlier, the fact that the wife is mentioned means that she had a great impact working together with her husband. She had something to offer too. We don't know who's doing the majority of the talking. We don't know who is, you know, it, it was one of them serving and one of them was talking. It doesn't say that. It just says that both of them uh, working together, that that they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Yeah. You know, when we're thinking about, I want to have a, you know, young people, when we try to give them advice on who to marry and, and what things to look out for and what things to set as goals, this should be towards the top if not the top, and that is, how do I become, who is someone that is going to work alongside me? Not just someone that's going to go to church with me, not just someone that's going to believe the same things that I do, but who? how do I have someone that's going to be right there with me, pushing me, challenging me, holding me accountable, someone that I can rely on, that they're going to push me through the difficult times, that I'm going to be able to lean on them whenever I struggle with whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, David, I'm thinking about if you don't have some other qualities, being a righteous couple may never be known. I mean, you certainly could be a righteous couple and uh, it doesn't require you to have other talents or other roles. But um, I guess what I'm thinking about is the, the hospitality Uh the, the hospitable servant role that you've talked about a couple of times in this, um, combine those together, right? A hospitable family that's also a righteous couple. And, and suddenly the roles, you know, the, the Ephesians five roles of husbands, love your wives and wives submit to your husbands, um, that kind of is illuminating out of their righteous marriage. It's through hospitality or it's through, um, spreading joy. It's interacting with others that this righteousness really is going to give God the glory. Any thoughts on that about how it, this really couldn't be one that uh, you don't hide it under a, a basket, right? You, you right. put the light on the lampstand. Right. Yeah. You know, when we see all of these roles together and you, you look at them, you're going to see that some of them are so tightly woven together with several other, other things. You can't really have this without being this type of person. You can't fulfill this role unless you're this one and this one. Now, this is a, a wonderful example that these two people are obviously holding 
other roles in their congregation. They obviously are doing those so well, and that's what makes them work so well together uh, and being effective in their community. I guess if we're on compassionate elders, right? Right. So we're in Acts 20. I'm trying to find my place. This one seems to be a role that um, I guess we're familiar with as far as, you know, we're asking the question, what's my role in the church? And I know way back at the beginning of the conversation, you framed it that we're all familiar with elders, preachers, deacons, but we're looking at other roles. So um, as you prepare to talk about it, how come elders make the cut on your uh, study about kind of people behind the scenes? Well, I think it's important that we see elders at work. Um, and the example that this is here, you know, we read, we go to the other passages and we read about the qualifications as we try to help congregations to understand uh, what, what qualifies a man to be an elder. And so we go over it from a, it's almost a mathematical equation, trying to figure out what makes a man qualified or not qualified. But I think that this passage is really important because you actually see them at work. And not just at work, but you see there's a really wonderful little phrase that describes active working elders. As Paul is saying goodbye in verse 36, when Paul had said this, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And this, these are the elders he's talking about here. It says, and they all wept openly as they embraced Paul and kissed him. Now. I don't think that's like a, a a command that all elders must be emotional, yeah. emotional to the point that they uh, can weep openly. But in describing who they are, they were so emotionally connected to mm. Paul personally and to this work, and just the thought of mortality that they're not going to see him again, and the relationships that they had all gained and had watched grow that they wept openly and I, I think that's not really the image that we see all the time as elders in fact a lot of the times um, I can remember growing up and, and hearing different uh, sermons on on trying to get people inspired to start the process of eldership and most people don't want them because they think of elders as being this hard-nosed under your thumb ruler that is like a tyrant, the tyrants of the church that are just right. going to take over and tell everybody what to do and no one has a say anymore. Right. And that's not the image we see here at all. Mm -hmm. We see some very tender-hearted men mm -hmm. that are moved by uh, the, the relationship that they have with Paul. And I think that, you know, it's almost a side note, but it's definitely worth putting in all of the roles. But if it goes all the way back to the beginning, we talked about the most obvious roles. I think this is really a clarification that should be added that amongst all these other roles, eldership should be a goal for young people as they're trying to figure out what they, uh, how they fit into the church. You know, that's kind of, it's something that, that should, it, it should be a goal, but it should be done in the right way. It shouldn't be thinking, mm -hmm. you know, I want to be an elder someday so that I can be in charge. Right. I want to be an elder someday so that I can be in relationships that are so loving and mean so much that I will be moved to weep openly. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the commands in the earlier um, verses in Acts 20. And I think because... I mean, uh, just to speak frankly, that's kind of where I've focused my teaching on the eldership. And so verse 37, which you just read, is really hitting me like a ton of bricks. So, I mean, I've preached. What do elders do? They keep watch. What do elders do? Uh, they recognize that the wolves are going to come in and not spare the flock. Um, what do they need to be aware of that people are going to rise up and distort the truth. 
Um, so they have to be alert. You know, that's like a highlight of those verses. And I feel like I've heard that talked on a lot. Um, so I really don't have anything to add to your your statement other than I'm, I'm kind of blown away by it. That in verse 37, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be there for no reason. I guess it's kind of one of the themes of, of your Bible study because a lot of these roles are a sentence or two in the various chapters. But when you think about it, uh, that's a sentence that speaks a lot. And here's people who are men who are weeping openly. What would you say, David, to maybe somebody's question about that, though? Maybe somebody would say, yeah, but that's just their culture. You know, they they wept in sackcloth and ashes. They were, they, they were just an emotional uh, group. So maybe... Um, this is just kind of a cultural statement because, you know, in our culture, emotions can get the better of you. And, and we don't want, we don't want people to maybe not make healthy decisions because they're so emotional. I think that's a valid thought, but to, uh, to continue the discussion, if you read verse 38, they were especially grieved by his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. How many people, when we say goodbye from an earthly standpoint to our family members, or, um, you know, when you have a really good meeting and you know that it's people you're just not going to see much anymore. Maybe it's not that you're never going to see them again, but you realize you don't, because of distance, you don't see them more than maybe once or twice a year. And it's emotional. I can remember when Amanda and I first started dating and you know, we lived practically halfway across the country. And those were some of the most emotional times I can mm-hmm. remember in my life was mm-hmm. having to say goodbye and getting in the car and driving away, knowing that um, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with her. I didn't want to be 800 miles away. Yeah. And I think this statement is, it's about humanity more than it is about culture. It's about yeah. the creation that God has within us that we, we are so tightly woven together as human beings that uh, when we're forced apart, sometimes it's, it's crushing. And I, that's the image that I see these men embracing him, hugging on him, you know, their arms around him and escorting him to the ship, knowing that, that yes, we're going to see you again someday. Yes, we, we've been blessed because of the times, all of those things. But sadness is real. And we see men, we see it captured as, you know, some of the most important men in this congregation. They're leaders that are just emotionally moved and distraught just because of sadness. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, so what does that mean? Does it, as far as a command, is it required? I, I think that it should be placed along with these requirements. Pick men that are going to be sound in doctrine enough to watch over the flock. Pick men that are going to be bold and brave enough to stand up when things are difficult. But pick men that are willing to be openly emotional. Because as human beings, life is emotional. Everybody that's been a part of a family, been a part of relationships, and been a part of a church has seen how messy that life can be when pride gets in the way and just just simple, you know, when when struggles. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be pride, but just when life is difficult, how emotional it can be. And you want men that you can look at and go, they're real too. They're yeah. dealing with this too, yeah. and they're overcoming it, and they're leading us through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we could probably talk a whole lot about this, um, so I'll try to be careful. But maybe one thing I could add on verse 37 is that nobody dismissed their emotional openness. Rather, they, they embraced it. And I have been, um, you know, I guess on this therapy journey that I've been on, but I'm seeing sometimes that because people are uncomfortable with emotions, because emotions are oftentimes very subjective and, and different from person to person, 
that we're quick to dismiss them and how deflating that is to have your, you know, this connection that you want to make with someone dismissed because it's not, you know, as objective as somebody else might like it to be. So I like the idea that instead of dismissing their grief and trying to, you know, suppress it, that a part of their characters that they're they're vulnerable enough with each other to uh, express it quite openly. Right. I another thought with that when you're talking about the diversity within a congregation and why that I believe that that we're instructed to have multiple elders and one of one of the reasons for that is how they kind of I guess checks and balances amongst their, themselves as they discuss and they they try to exercise wisdom having people that will will hold each other accountable yes but also having men that are different is really important too that not everyone is going to uh connect to this guy as much as they're going to connect maybe to this guy and then somebody might connect to him more than than the others and like you said, there are people within a congregation that are going to be naturally more emotionally charged. Right. And they're going to need certain things that some men naturally may not be able to offer them. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important. Maybe you have some men that it's easier for them to be open emotionally and listen and counsel people that are that way and uh, that it comes easier for them as opposed to others that may not, they may be more hands-off, but they may be, you know, someone like that may be better at at something else. So I think you're right. And I think that, that we can't dismiss the need of a congregation uh, within a congregation, people that have um, just a wide variety of emotional needs and to make sure that we have leadership that understands that and can, connect to that naturally. Man, I hate to use uh, (laughs) an example that's not biblical in a very healthy conversation. Maybe it's just the way my brain works. But um, do you ever watch any Star Trek? (laughs) It's been a few years. (laughs) Um, I was not a Trekkie as far as watching everything. But they do have an officer, by the way. I don't know if this is going to make the cut. But uh, they have an officer that they call the empath. Do you remember that? Have you ever heard of that? Uh, yes, yeah. Right, so what part of their, their leadership structure was somebody who could sense what their, you know, whoever they were interacting with emotionally was going on because there was value in... Um, knowing what somebody was feeling as they were trying to have these intense meetings. Anyway, I don't know why that popped up other than if, if elders, I guess in this scripture, um, maybe they're, you know, uh, a man's man or, you know, an old cowboy or whatever, some, something where the emotional experience, maybe they're, they struggle with it or they, um, don't know how to express it very well themselves, but they are very capable of, watching over the flock, et cetera, learning how to delegate some of that work to someone who is more talented at, at sensing and helping people through an, an emotional uh, experience. Um, you have any thoughts on delegating, you know, this task to people who uh, may be better at it than you? Well, this is, I mean, this is a conversation we could go on and on about, um, <laughs> it kind of goes back to the qualifications of elders and you know, instead of we, we always look at it sometimes I shouldn't say we always do, but there's a lot of times that we look at it as these are the disqualifications. Like I need to know them so I can know why so-and-so isn't qualified instead of why is this qualification? What skill should a man have because of this qualification that's going mm-hmm. to help him fit this position better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's take, for example, that that they're supposed to have godly children or their children are supposed to be believers. Well, you know, 
haven't you heard most most of your life? Well, what's godly children? Uh, how many is godly children? And there's right. so many discussions about that. But what what why is that in there? It's because ultimately these men should have experienced raising children in to a level that they can help other people within their congregation. They're going to go through similar problems. So as young families come up and they're struggling with, you know, maybe a child that 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 has this certain behavior, has this, you know, they can go to them and say, well, you know, for some parenting advice, what do we do? How do we motivate our children to be more spiritually minded? Well, having elders that have been through that before and have had those same struggles is going to be, you know, invaluable to a congregation. And then within that, there's going to be diversity of parenting styles. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some, you know, for example, if you have a, an elder that raised all boys and an elder that raised all girls, they're going to have a wealth of knowledge, but not the same. Right. So to be able to delegate when someone comes up and says, hey, I've got a teenage girl, I, I'm, I'm really struggling to keep her focused on this or that. It's going to be easier for the elder that raised all boys to say, you know what, you should sit down with brother so-and-so because I remember his second daughter was just like this and he's going to have a lot more information on it than maybe I had. And that's just a small example, but you can take that and run with it as far as application within a congregation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I did put you on the spot too. You, you've handled it very well, but yes, I'm I'm thankful just to hear you offer any example, but but such um, powerful examples of ways that our our elders can work together, but then also, I guess, take stock of their own strengths and weaknesses, knowing when to step in and when to delegate. So, thank you. Um, we're on the last one, right? As far as the the list that I see and I'm curious if this was intentional or not. The word hospitable is coming up again and it's the third time. Uh, as you, as you talk about what you see in chapter 21, I guess my questions are twofold. One, was it intentional that you talked about hospitality so much? And then two, what is it about chapter 21 that makes this hospitable servant maybe unique from the others? Well, I'll start with that, the with the latter thought first. I don't think there's anything specific to this. And I mean, just like so many of these other examples, how many times have you read through this and considered that this disciple, you know, the home of, um, I forget how you say his name here, but um, you just read through it and you think, you move on to the next passage and you don't even consider that this is an example of a role being dealt here in the first century in in this church. You just don't think about it, but I don't have anything specific that makes it stand out from the other two. Okay. Yes. The fact that we now have a third mention of, um, and really you could make an argument that several of the other ones also could be labeled hospitable servants as well. Uh, that those are my words, not Luke's. Sure. Obviously. Sure. Um, so what then does that say? If you're a data driven person, what does it say if the same role continues to pop up in a study like this with slight different, you know, slightly altered changes to it? Um, I think it says, Maybe this one is really important. Mm. Maybe that this is, if this is a reoccurring role, that this is something that must, number one, be necessary. But number two, it might be the most common because it might be the most simple to ap- apply to whatever your, uh, your strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, mm. hospitality does not have to be everyone come to my house every week. Yeah. Hospitality just means, you know, we, we, we've already discussed this, sharing what you have. I, uh, we had an opportunity to, to live in a congregation several years ago that, uh, wow, I mean, we were truly blessed. I, I truly believe that, that we, we were able to witness hospitality on every level. I mean, as far as 
people that really were well off that went out of their way so often to take care of other people, mm-hmm. but also other young couples like us that were pulling us in and trying to take us out to eat and pay for our food or having us over to their house or their apartment and, and feeding us that way. In fact, our, our chili recipe that we still have as a family 20 years later is one from another young couple in Midland, Texas that, uh, that we still love. And it came from something like that, like a game night where someone just wanted to have us over. And the mentality of, I don't really care how much I have. I just want to share it. Mm. And I don't care if I can't do as much as so-and-so because I don't have the resources, the money or the house or whatever it is. I don't care. I just want an opportunity um, to be able to share what I have. And as a practical thing with that, young people shouldn't wait. You know, we shouldn't wait for until we have an established family to have the preacher over that comes in to hold a gospel meeting. You know, it could be so small as, hey, do you mind if one of these nights I take you out for ice cream after the church, after service, and uh, talk to you about your sermon? It could be a little thing like that, but right. just making sure that I want to turn. when Whenever they come, I may not be able to afford an entire meal. I may not have a place to have him and his entire family over. I don't care. I just want to turn to be able to give something mm-hmm. and share something in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to um, tell you this, David, this, this will applies to our recording. Um, but I also want to give you a word of encouragement because just yesterday I was talking to a young couple. They're engaged uh, to be married and they were, they were making plans about what sort of coffee um, device they wanted to have. Did they want to have the Keurig with the little pot, uh, you know, capsule things, or did they want the drip coffee that could make a bunch of coffee? And uh, one of them said, well, I think we should do the Keurig because, you know, it's just the two of us and you don't drink coffee. And so I'll, um, you know, just make this, this little pod on my way to work. And, you know, the other one was like, yeah, but I like drip coffee better. Didn't I? But because you and I had talked about this recently, you know, in our recordings for this podcast, I told him, hey, you know what? As as you prepare to buy this device, don't think about it about just what you two will drink. Think about it for all the times that you're going to be hospitable. And if you're going to be hospitable, which is going to be better? or more efficient for that sort of hospitality. And immediately their wheels start turning. And one of them said, oh, well, we, we definitely got to get the drip coffee then. That way it can have, you know, 12 cups of coffee in it at the same time. And the other said, no, but I like the Keurig because uh, we could have all different varieties of coffee and our guests could choose from it. And they didn't leave the conversation determining which coffee pot to get, but... Get both. Yeah. Well, I like I liked that suddenly there was this excitement of how could we best serve others in our house? And these were, you know, they're 21 years old, but, but it, it came alive to them. I wanted to share that with you because I feel like your message inspired me to help them. And then now they're inspired to be hospitable. Anyway, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. It's, you know, again, it's a mindset change or, you know, you could be like us and we hate coffee, but we, we bought one just because we know you're going to come and maybe somebody else that's going to come. So we got to have it ready. Right. Well, mom and dad are the same way. They, they have a coffee pot. I think they make, they brew tea in it uh, because they don't drink coffee, but they have it so that when people come over, they can, they can brew coffee. You know, we've talked about this verse. We haven't read it. You mind if I read it real quick and and uh, maybe there's other things. I'm not certain what else you have to say on it, but uh, people probably if they're driving or, you know, they're at a point where they can't listen to the scripture. We haven't read Acts 21 to them yet. Sure. You mind if I read it? Yeah, go ahead. Verse 15 and 16 says, after these days, we packed up and went on to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and they took us to stay at the home of Nason, the Cypriot, Cypriot, an early disciple. See, I'm glad you read it. (laughs) (laughs) 
you can butcher the name. <laughs> right. Well, you, if you bake it up with confidence, people won't know that you don't know what you're saying. That's my yeah. thing. I, I just say it different every time, and it's surely one of those times is going to be right. <laughs> so what's happening here? Well, okay, so, so the fact that some of this, the disciples, it says some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to stay at the house, which means they were hospitable with somebody else's hospitality, which speaks even more about the original person's hospitality. Right, right. I want you to think about that and put that in a practical setting. People in your congregation, there are people in your congregation that if someone came to stay with you and you didn't have space for them, you know how hospitable that they are Mm. and don't even need to call them to ask permission. You just know, hey, you can stay with so-and-so. Hold on a second. Let me call them. I know that they'll be fine with it. I just want to let them know that you're going to be coming. Right. Everybody has somebody like that. We know of someone that their home is so open or, you know, maybe not just at their home. Uh, it could be anything. Somebody that needs a ride, somebody that needs something. You know that you can volunteer their hospitality because of the way that they live their life. Right. Right. I like how you differentiated that uh, home or ride. It seems like being hospitable with your time is just as valuable as being hospitable with your resources. Sure. Okay. Well, you, uh, as you wrap it up, it looks like you kind of go through and, and put them in um, groups or numbers or something here. And then you've got a, a final scripture. Tell me about this. Uh, the way you group them and what value we get from that. And then let's wrap it up with that scripture in, in first Corinthians 12. Sure. So what I did here is just take, um, all of the examples that we've talked about together, the two of us and put them into the group. So we have four women alone that are named. We have 12 specific men that are named. We have five groups of men that are named. And then we have two groups of people. And they could be men or they could be women. It's not specific. But I just felt it was really important that we uh, show the diversity within that. Yeah. And we've called out several women in particular, but... um, it's really important that we talk about the role of a woman and not just what she offers from a domestic standpoint within a home. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we know that and we've talked about mm-hmm. that traditionally. Those are the most obvious things, but those could be set aside for a second just to talk about what wonderful and great works that men and women can do. Yeah. And, and you know, it's something that as uh, I guess we can call ourselves middle-aged. We're not young anymore. Um, yeah, you're 40. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost forties, right? Unfortunately, yes. And <laughs> um, but one thing that middle-aged folks like us, guys like us, uh-huh. and older guys, that as we stand in the pulpit and as we stand in front of a microphone and we pray, for um, God to watch over these young men and these young women is to not not compartmentalize the opportunities for men and for women Mm -hmm. so much, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I don't want to diminish anyone and I would never want anyone to feel uh, like I'm calling them out, but if I stand up, in the pulpit, you know, and giving a prayer, and I say, uh, God, watch over all these young men that they can uh, become leaders in the church and become preachers and teachers within the church and elders someday. Well, what about the men that aren't going to become those things mm-hmm. or don't have those abilities? Mm-hmm. You know, and they have to hear, or, or those young men that have fathers that aren't those things. 
Right. And now they're, they're a little uncomfortable. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't say, uh, and we shouldn't pray for young men to become preachers and teachers and leaders. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think that we need to be aware that there may be some men that don't fit those roles. And let's add to that, help men to be kind and to be encouragers, mm-hmm. help them to have eyes that are open to the needs of others. Make sure we include things like that, that all young men can uh, can see as an opportunity for them. And it goes that way with women. There's so many incredible opportunities for women outside of just being a wife and a mother, which are huge. I would never diminish those roles. I mean, right. The right. things that, that we watch our spouses do, you know, or, or we watch our wives do, they're so empowering to watch them do that. But we have to think as we stand up there and we, we say a prayer the same way that we said to the young men that we would say, watch over all these young women so that someday they can become a wife. There's nothing wrong necessarily with saying that. And I think that we should be praying for young women that that's something they aspire to do is to have a family. Uh, But we kind of diminish all these roles that we just talked about in the book of Acts that women can do and can do a great job at it. Mm. Uh, So I, I think that it's important that we sit down and we think about our congregation and we think, okay, what, what can I do? from a simple standpoint of just praying. Yeah. How do I take this study and look at the way that I pray and especially the way I pray publicly that could affect young men and young women as they're they're eagerly trying to figure out how they fit into the the congregation and what their role is. How can I inspire them to know that there's there's so much more that they can offer uh than than maybe one or two roles that we've always looked at. Yeah, I love it. I, I'm hearty amen. I won't add much more other than uh, I feel a bit convicted. You know, it is easy to pray about and focus on some roles that maybe are a little bit more visible. And um, yeah, I, I think I need to think about personally how to encourage the ones that are a little bit less visible. Um, th- is this in, whenever you give this study, is this kind of your intro to 1 Corinthians 12? Because it seems like this would be a great scripture to go with this point that you're making. Yes. So what's going on here? Okay, so this is the passage that a lot of people quote from, and they, uh, you know, they give the compressed version. They may not say any of the exact uh, verses in particular, but when People try to say, just in conversation, you know, a church is made up of lots of different gifts. A lot of people have different gifts. And this person's good at that. This person's good at that. You know, they're, they're taking these all of these verses and combining it into just a few statements. But what I'd like to do, like I said, I'd like to read it, at least read a couple of verses so people can get some context. Um, and then I want to insert the study that we've been doing and see if it, changes our perspective a little bit. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 12, starting verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is composed of many parts, and although its parts are many, they all form one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. For the body does not consist of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in mm-hmm. fact, God has arranged the members of the body, every one of them according to his design. Pause. And think about the study that we just had mm. and all those different roles and think about that verse now with you know 18 different role possibilities in the book of Acts. 
Right. In fact, God has arranged members of the body, every one of them, according to his design. No one should ever say, I don't have the skills to be an elder. I don't have this. I don't have the personality for this thing. I'm not outgoing enough to do this and to do that. Because what we really do is we doubt God's design. Yeah. It says, according to his design, God put us together specifically so that we would have the skills that we have. We just have to figure out how to use them. We have to Mm -hmm. figure out what compartment we kind of go into and say, okay, that's me. I can do that. Now, I want to go back and I want to read a couple of these verses. Okay, so if we start in verse 14, and instead of using what Paul uses here, the eye, the foot, the hand, the ear, all that kind of stuff, what if we used the titles that we gave some of these roles from the book of Acts and plugged some of those in? Mm -hmm. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the proclaimer of change should say, because I am not a kindness seeker, I am not a part of the body. Right, right, right. And if the hospitable servant says, well, I'm I'm not a compassionate elder, mm-hmm. then I don't belong to the body. Mm-hmm. And so what you have here, if you read that whole passage and you change it over and you enter mingle any of these thoughts, what you have here is it's saying the exact same thing. Every congregation needs all of these people in order to truly work yeah. at its at best, the most effective. And none of them should be diminished. You know, one of them should not say, well, you know, the, the spreader of joy, they can't really do near as much as what we can do over here because we have, you know, these resources, right? No one should think that Yeah, everybody should be able to identify what their skill is, mm-hmm. what they can do, and then be proud of that. Knowing I belong to the body. The body needs me to do what God designed me to do. Mm-hmm. Man, that's great. I love it. I love interjecting the, the different roles that we focused on in this study into verse 14, 15, 16, uh, that really came alive. How do you want to end this? How do you end it when you when you preach it, uh, as we talk about it? Do you have a final thought you'd like to share with our listeners? I think that, I don't, I don't know how possible this is for you to be able to put maybe a PDF of this last slide, the examples of the roles in the book. In the yeah, church. I'll, I'll put it on my website underneath the link to the podcast. So people could go there to pureandsimplebible.com backslash podcast. Find this uh, series called "What Is My Role in the Church," and I'll I'll have an image of it. I think it's important for people to look at that and be able to literally point with their finger and say, "That's me. That is who I am right there." And I feel so different now because I've really never felt like I belong. I've never felt like. I have the skills to be one of these traditional roles, but seeing it up there, that's me. And you know what? Not just that is me, but then that one over there and that one, I can do those too. Mm. And that lights a fire under us. Like I now have so much more to offer the church to the people in the congregation that I never really thought that I did. And now I can get to work. I get those sleeves rolled up and, and start being who I'm designed to be. But another part of that too is, okay, I'm number, I'm number six and I'm number 15 and I'm number 18. Well, what do I want to be someday? Mm. What can I work on and add to that? Maybe yeah. I could be two or three more of those things. Yeah. I just hadn't considered before. Right. Well, David, this has been fantastic, and I hope that um, you know people who listen to this get as encouraged as I have. I know you've got a lot of good feedback um, as you've presented it as a, a sermon series at um, a few different places now. That's where some of us have heard it, but if people wanted to reach out to you, 
Uh, could they contact you to talk more about this? Would you like them to come through Pure and Simple Bible uh, and and then be you know transferred on to you? Is there a way that that someone might try to get in touch with you? Absolutely. I think that that might be the easiest thing to do is to uh, reach out to you and you you can share any of my con- contact info. Okay. And I would be glad to to discuss this further. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. You can send me an email at pureandsimplebible at gmail.com. And uh, if this message has been very special for you and you'd like to maybe pick David's brain about it a little bit more, then holler at me and I'll pass it along. David, thank you very much for recording with me and, and spending this time. It's been a, a real treat and I'm so thankful for it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I just want to say it one more time, how thankful I am that David recorded that with me. Obviously, there's a family connection. But even though David's my brother in the flesh, he's also my brother in, or rather through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, He's my spiritual brother. And we live on other sides of the country. We don't get to see each other as much as we'd like. So this was very enjoyable for me just to get to spend time with my brother and my brother. You can go to the website and look up any of the podcasts or videos or workbooks or anything that I produce for Pure and Simple Bible. You can download and utilize them absolutely free. And I'd encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, help me get this information into the hands of people who either need to be encouraged as believers or who need to hear the gospel so that they can repent and be converted. I want you to know, I say it at the end of every episode, and I mean it. So I'm going to say it one more time. God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, we'll see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, it's real.